In previous episodes of the podcast, we've discussed hydration both before and during exercise. But what we haven't talked about in detail is the process of working out your fluid needs. Now, you're probably familiar with the process of measuring sweat losses, you know, weighing yourself before and after exercise. And some of you might already be calculating this with adjustments for the fluid that you consume and even the food that you eat or bathroom breaks that you might be taking during those sessions. Today, we're going to share some very simple yet incredibly powerful inclusions to the sweat testing process that will add so much more value to your testing. It'll help you understand your results and what they mean, but more importantly, what to do with those results. They're things that you've probably never heard spoken about before and never really considered adding to your sweat testing process, but once you hear them today, they'll both seem really obvious and incredibly useful as well. Hello and welcome to The Long Munch, the nutrition podcast for runners, cyclists and triathletes. I'm Alan McCubbin. And I'm Steph Gaskell. We're both accredited sports dietitians based in Melbourne and combined have over 30 years experience working with runners, cyclists and triathletes to help them stay healthy and optimise their performance, whether they're complete beginners through to professional and Olympic athletes. Each episode, we take a deep dive into the most common nutrition questions that runners, cyclists and triathletes ask, sort of things that people are talking about out on their run or ride in the coffee shop afterwards or jumping online to try and find answers for. So we'll take that question, break it down and invite a guest expert or athlete to add their perspective. Today it's episode 53, how do I work out my fluid needs during exercise? And we don't actually have a special guest today, we'll be doing this one in-house. But in the meantime, how are you going Steph? First of all, special guest is you, Alan. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so very lucky to have you, you on the on the podcast. I'm I'm going much better. Yeah, last week, unfortunately, I wasn't able to. Well, it's two weeks ago now, wasn't it? Um, mm. Wasn't able to join you on the on the podcast. Yeah, had a very unusual reaction to uh, medication, which meant that I had more than about 18 ulcers in my mouth. Um, yeah, not nice. Yeah, you know, you, you think one's bloody annoying. Just imagine having more than that. So um, Tanya, I think, got to enjoy a bit of peace and quiet back here at home. She was probably lapping it up, but um, <laughs> now I'm back to myself, so making up for all that lost time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, fair enough. And um, how are you going out, getting back into the swing of things? Kids are, are Going back to school, uni starting. Yeah, pretty much. Kids back, just uh, getting ready for the semester at the uni, planning another study at the uni. We don't have Ooh. anything to announce about that just yet, but uh, we've got to go through all the ethics process and everything first, obviously. But yeah, we'll probably be looking for participants for yet another study here in Melbourne, um, maybe in a couple of months' time. So we'll tell everyone about that when it's when it's ready. Yeah, that'll be a good one. Looking mm. forward to that. Yep. How about updates and announcements, Steph? I'll let you do these ones today. Yeah, so this is actually the 99th episode of the Long Munch. So that means that we have a very special episode coming up for our 100th episode and we'll go more into that at the end of this show. Also, Al, you have been hard at work because you are 
very much the technical and graphic designer of all things for the longmunch.com. So our new website is now live. There's not too much on there at the moment, but we will be making some announcements about that next week about what to expect there and when to expect it. So that is thelongmunch.com. And just a reminder, if you do have a question you'd like answered on the podcast, you can find us on social media at The Long Munch on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter. But today's episode is how do I work out my fluid needs during exercise? And we are lucky enough to be joined by Dr. Alan McCubbin. (laughs) Just for for something different. (laughs) Just for something different. (laughs) But yeah, as mentioned right off the top of the podcast, most people are familiar with weighing themselves before and after training to calculate their sweat losses. But today we're actually going to take that to a whole new level. So we're going to help you figure out whether you're drinking too little or whether you're drinking too much or are you kind of at that sweet spot and you're drinking just the, the right amount. Most importantly, though, if it's not the right amount, we're going to help you be able to figure out why and what you can actually do to help um, rectify that. Mm, yep. And I think that's an important point because, you know, in the past, people would do tests and they work out their sweat rate and they'd look at how much they're drinking or how much fluid they lost and they go, oh, I'm not drinking enough. But they wouldn't understand why they're not drinking enough or mm. people would just go, it's not enough, drink more. Well, that's not necessarily that helpful if you're struggling to drink more yep. or in some cases you might be drinking too much. Well, how, do you, how can you, you know, reduce that or reduce the risk of over drinking as well? So, yeah, it would be good to get into those details. Yeah. Yep. So let's first talk about why hydration actually matters. So, um. Way back, if we, our listeners can remember, episode 3A, we were joined by Dr. Lewis James and we asked the question, should I drink to a plan or drink to thirst? So are you able to uh, just quickly recap the, the key points from that episode? Yeah. So as we mentioned back then, and I think that was probably, I think, the very first podcast of 2021, that's how long ago it was now, mm-hmm. Um we yeah discussed that question it's been quite controversial over the years because you've had some pretty vocal people either saying you know you need to if you're thirsty you're already dehydrated you need to drink more drink more you know work out your sweat losses and drink in exact amount you've had other people say that's absolute rubbish it's going to kill you from hyponatremia you should just drink to thirst and that's the only strategy you actually need and it was great to chat to Lewis about that because I think you know, you know similar to us he probably sits somewhere in the middle saying that both of those strategies have potential benefits but also flaws with them you know drink to thirst is fine but if you don't have any drink and you're thirsty, you can't drink it. So there still needs to be some planning involved in terms of how much fluid is available at any given time. Uh, He also talked about the fact that, you know, you don't need to replace 100% of your fluid losses, and that increases your risk of gut issues. Uh, It makes you a little bit heavier, which obviously if you're running or cycling up a hill, for example, there may be a slight disadvantage in that. So actually losing a tiny bit of weight, as long as it's not detrimental to performance like power output, is not necessarily going to be a problem and, and actually in some cases maybe slightly 
beneficial, although the research isn't really clear on that. I guess the other thing we talked about in there is that, you know, drinking to thirst can be the plan and thirst is a good feedback mechanism because we don't have many good feedback mechanisms during exercise to know how we're going. You know, are we, you know, slightly over drinking and, you know, for a couple of hours of exercise, that probably doesn't matter. But by the time you get out to 5, 10, 15 hours of exercise, it could make an enormous difference. And the same with under drinking. Um, and so, you know, thirst is a, a good feedback mechanism there. But we also talked about in that episode, there are examples of people who said, I don't feel thirsty and ended up terribly dehydrated. And other people that said, I drank because I was thirsty and ended up overhyped hydrated with hyponatremia mm. so um, thirst isn't a bulletproof guarantee that you're going to get to where you need to from a, a hydration point of view now in terms of actual performance most people are familiar with the kind of the two percent body mass loss which has been in guidelines for you know a good few decades now essentially that if you lose more than two percent of your starting body weight through fluid losses that your performance will be impaired as lewis said you know, that's probably not a hard and fast rule. There are examples of people that have done amazing things that have lost significantly more fluid than that. There are some studies that find that people can't afford to lose even that much fluid. But as Lewis said, as one of the researchers in this field, what he sees with the participants is the the response is highly individual. And so while the average might work out to be about 2%, for any one person, they may tolerate 4 or 5% and someone else may only tolerate 1%. But it's hard to know with any kind of confidence with that because there's no easy way to kind of test for that. So it, it's a tricky one. But I would say, yeah, somewhere in that 2 to 3% range sounds reasonable. And what that does to the body basically is it reduces the, the total amount of water in your body but also your blood volume and so there's probably a couple of different effects here one is it tends to make your core body temperature just a little bit higher than it would have otherwise been and it also makes your heart rate a little bit higher because you've got a little bit less blood volume so you've got to pump it around more frequently to get the same supply of oxygen and nutrients to the body and i guess the final thing to note here is that for the ultra endurance athletes out there body weight loss and, and we'll get into this in a bit more detail um, later on no doubt doesn't necessarily reflect fluid loss it's pretty good for the first sort of three or four hours of exercise but once you're exercising for 10 or 15 hours you have other causes of weight gain and weight loss that are nothing to do with water that can start to skew i guess your view of that so if you weigh yourself before and after a 15 hour run or ride or whatever it is you know you should actually expect to lose more body mass than that because you're going to lose your body fat and muscle glycogen and all those kind of things along the way and your body's actually producing a little bit of water either being released from glycogen as as it gets used up but also the actual process of turning carbohydrate and fat into energy actually produces a small amount of water as part of that and while over an hour or two, that's pretty irrelevant. Over 10 or 15 hours, mm. that does start to add up. Yep. Yeah. Thinking about sweat rate testing, most people are probably pretty familiar with the concept of weighing themselves before and they weigh themselves after training to work out the actual fluid losses. But taking a, a step back, what's the actual value in doing this? Or what are we trying to actually achieve by doing this? Mm. Yeah, it's a good question because I think sometimes people go out there and do a sweat rate test because they think they should, but they don't necessarily know why they're doing it or how to use the information that they actually get from that test. So I think for me, there's kind of two reasons that you might do it. 
the first is I guess more acute I guess for lack of a better word is is you know on that particular day you're actually looking at what what was the fluid deficit in this particular session because I need to rehydrate rapidly because I've got another session coming only a few hours later might be a double day and the second session is hard as well it's hot or you know it's a stage race and you want to rehydrate for the next day as best you can so it's looking at what is your fluid deficit in this session so I know how much I need to drink in the recovery from this session to rehydrate rapidly for the next session so that would be the first reason and we'll get to you know how much to drink a little bit later on and then the second reason and I think probably the one that most or gets used more often and certainly the reason I use this kind of assessment more often is to actually try and work out what people's expected fluid losses will be for race day based on you know what's happening in training so it, it then helps you have some idea of you know how much is the person likely to need fluid wise on the the day of their event whether that's a hard you know hard training session or or a race and also helps you then do some planning around you know making sure you've got access to that amount of fluid on race day whether that's from aid stations whether it's things that you carry with you if it's a you know a crude event where you've got your own support crew you know making sure that they've got enough fluid they can give you that kind of thing and if someone is choosing to drink to thirst does it then become unnecessary for them to actually know what their fluid losses are mm. and i think this is where the whole drink to thirst messaging has kind of in my opinion, led people astray a little bit. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I'm not saying that drink to thirst is not a good strategy and a lot of the time I do recommend that to athletes I work with. Mm. But if you're, you know, 10 kilometres from the nearest source of water and you run out of water and you're thirsty, you can't drink to thirst. There's Mm -hmm. no water there. So, you know, drinking to thirst is one thing, but still knowing roughly how much fluid that is going to require is still important from a planning perspective in terms of, you know, how much water are you going to carry with you at any one time? How much can you access at different parts along a course or in training or whatever it is? So I think, you know, doing sweat rate testing isn't mutually exclusive from drinking to thirst in the way it has kind of been made out to be in in social media over the years, that, you know, if you do a sweat test, you're not a, a corporate shill for the sports drink industry that has to drink to a plan, you know, testing your sweat rate can be incredibly useful in working out how much fluid you expect to need and then you can still drink to thirst from within that but you know you're not going to run out of fluid Mm. or carry unnecessarily high amounts of fluid which is just carrying extra weight for the sake of it as well yeah and you could also it can also sort of help tell you whether thirst is perhaps a valuable measure Mm. for you like you said some people maybe it's a bit skewed for them yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think the great irony on this, and I think we talked about this back in the hyponatremia podcast, is and and the guys who sort of wrote the consensus statement around hyponatremia mostly come from that sort of drink to thirst mm. viewpoint. But you know the the whole crux of that and their their big message at the end is drink to thirst and you won't get hyponatremia. But ironically. There's a little box in that paper of case studies of people who drank to thirst and developed mm-hmm. hyponatremia. Mm-hmm. They kind of tend to gloss over that. So, mm-hmm. yeah, there, there definitely is cases where thirst doesn't get you to where you want to or need to go. Mm-hmm. And as we'll talk about a bit later on, that's something that we can actually figure out during this testing process that gives you really valuable feedback that you can then use to interpret your sensation of thirst on race day. Yep. 
And so now getting into how we actually do sweat rate testing or fluid balance assessment, can you talk us through the actual method of, of how to do it properly? Mm. Yeah, so most people are probably familiar with, you know, weigh yourself before and after exercise and the weight that you've lost is sweat loss. And, and yeah, that's, I guess, the, the bare bones of it. But there is a little bit more involved with it, and particularly if you want to make it as accurate as you can. So we'll talk through, I guess, the process that, that you and I would use, Steph, what we recommend in terms of equipment for that kind of process as well. So I guess before you even start doing the testing, you want to have the equipment there that you need to do this accurately. So the first thing you're going to need is obviously a good set of digital body weight scales, preferably accurate to 0.1 kilos, so 100 grams, because obviously uh, if it's only accurate to half a kilo or, or 200 grams or something like that, then your final result is going to be plus or minus 200 grams or 500 grams or whatever it is. Mm. Uh, and so it's, it's going to be less accurate. If you do have access to digital kitchen scales as well, I would do that. And, you know, they're generally going to be accurate to one or two grams. And so that doesn't really matter because you've got body weight that's going to be out by up to 100 grams, you know, whether it's one gram, two grams, five grams on the kitchen scales really doesn't matter. Then obviously you need all the food and fluids that you're going to use in your session and the, the bottles and the packaging that goes along with that, whatever you're going to use to carry it in. Then the uh, having a sweat towel is really important and we'll talk about about why in a sec and then having a stopwatch or some way of timing the the duration of the session that you're doing as well is going to be important so once you've got all of that stuff and you're ready to do your tests i guess the first thing is to go to the toilet empty your bladder before you start and then weigh yourself preferably completely stark naked so obviously if you're training from home that's easy to do just whip into the bathroom and do it in there if you're out at the trailhead of a, a mountain bike course or something like that maybe not so appropriate <laughs> so in that case I guess it's trying to do it in as little clothing as you can get away with and obviously clothing that tends not to absorb too much fluid as well so obviously things like cycling mix or you know kind of polyester type gear that doesn't absorb a lot of moisture will be preferable to cotton type things that so take your socks off and that kind of thing because they're going to soak up more sweat and change weight from the start to the end of exercise so weigh yourself beforehand with as little gear on as you can get away with then weigh your all the drink bottles or flasks or whatever it is that you're carrying your fluids in and preferably do that both empty and then full with the fluid that you're going to carry on the day now obviously empty you could do that the next day or the day before it doesn't have to be in that moment exactly then also weigh your food in the packaging that you're going to carry it in as well so obviously the, the the bottles and the food will be with the kitchen scales so record all of those things down and then record the time that you start your session or you know start your stopwatch obviously if you're doing it that way then you're going to go and do that session and that i guess the key thing here is that if you you're going through your drink bottles and you finish them hold on to them or your flasks if you're having you know gels and bars and things like that during your session hold on to the packaging as well because you need that packaging to weigh at the end and then obviously record the time then the session stops at the end if you do go to the toilet during that session make sure you weigh yourself before and after that if it's possible now obviously if you're out in the middle of a trail you're not going to be able to carry scales around and weigh yourself before and after that so it's not always possible so in that case just maybe make note of you know how many times you had to stop to go to the toilet that kind of thing 
so then we move on to after the session is finished. So firstly, obviously, we need to record the time that the session stopped if you're doing it just by time of day so we can work out the, the total duration of that session. The next thing we need to do is we need to remove as much sweat from the body as we possibly can. So that means getting your sweat towel, drying all the, skin, the sweat that's still you know sitting on your skin, drying all of that off, uh, taking off all those clothes that you don't need to weigh yourself, the cotton socks and, and those sorts of things, drying your hair as much as you can to get the sweat out of your hair as well. Obviously, the, the longer the hair, the more challenging that's going to be. You want to get, get as much of that sweat that's sitting on your skin off uh, as possible before you weigh yourself. So once you've done that, you're going to weigh yourself as you did beforehand with the same combination of clothes or lack of clothes as possible. Then you're going to weigh your drink bottles, whether they're empty, you still want to weigh them because you want to know what's left of the weight of the bottle itself. And that includes any that you didn't start to drink. And then also weighing all the food, including the leftover packaging from the start of the session. So now you've got all the weights before, all the weights afterwards. You've got toilet stops. Um, you've done the best you can to make that as accurate as possible. So then you've got to do all your calculations. So there's a whole bunch of calculations, and I'll, I'll go through these slowly and explain what each of them means and why we do them. So the first and the most obvious one is just how much body weight or body mass did you lose during the session? So just taking the weight you were at the start of the session minus the weight you were at the end. So if you were 70 kilos at the start and 68 kilos at the end, 70 minus 68, you've lost two kilos. So that, that's all good. So then we know our body mass loss. We want to work out how much fluid we drank. So we've got our bottles or the weight of our bottles with the fluids in them at the start. We can subtract the weight that they were at the end to work out how much fluid was actually consumed, assuming that one gram of fluid equals one mil of fluid, which is close enough for anything that humans are going to drink. And then obviously we do the same for the food. So the food in its packaging beforehand and any leftover food and leftover packaging at the end as well. Uh, in terms of urine weight loss, obviously it's the weight before you went to the toilet minus the weight afterwards if you could weigh yourself. If you don't, one of the suggestions has been you know, estimating about 300 grams or 0.3 kilos per toilet stop, essentially. Obviously, some some be a bit more, some be a bit less, but it's a, a reasonable estimate to start off with. And then obviously, you want your session duration, and generally, we want that converted to hours. Uh, and that'll be based on the time that you, you started and stopped. And so for a lot of these, it's easier to do a session that's a specific duration. So like, one hour or one and a half or two hours because it's just easier to do the calculations later on. So we've got all of that sort of basic information and then we can start to do those equations to work out, you know, what is my sweat rate and all that kind of thing. So the first thing we want to do is calculate your actual sweat loss. So you're going to take your body weight or body mass loss, which is going to be in kilos. So we want to convert that into grams. So we're going to multiply it by a thousand. So if we lost two kilos, it's now 2,000 grams. And then we're going to take that weight and we lost our 2,000 grams, but at the same time, we also drank a certain amount of fluid. So we have to add the weight of the fluid that we drank because we lost that in addition. So if we lost 500 mils of fluid, we're going to add that. So now we've got the, the 2,000 2, grams that we lost of body weight plus another 500 grams of fluid that we consume. So now we've actually lost two and a half thousand grams. 
And then we've got to add the weight of the food that we consume, which might be, I don't know, 100 grams. So now we've lost 2,600 grams. But at the same time, if we're looking at sweat losses, we might have lost weight through going to the toilet, through urine loss. And so we need to subtract that off. So that's weight loss that wasn't sweat. So maybe we lost that 300 mils. So we've got our 2,600 mils so far, but we actually subtract off the 300 mils because we did one toilet stop to pee. And so actually we lost 2,300 grams or 2.3 liters of sweat during the session. To work out your sweat rate, obviously you're just going to take that number and divide it by the number of hours that you are training. So it was 2,300 mils and it was a one hour session. Then your sweat rate is 2.3 liters or 2,300 mils an hour. And then the actual fluid deficit is the sweat loss plus the urine loss. So you just don't correct for the urine loss there if you're looking at the total water loss of the body as opposed to just exclusively from sweating. And then the other thing you might like to calculate is the percentage of your body weight that you lost from fluid. And this is just taking that total fluid deficit, so the sweat and urine losses in kilos or litres, and dividing that by your body weight in kilos. And then you're going to get a percentage figure, which could be anywhere from, you know, less than 1% to maybe 3 or 4%, depending on the session, how hard it was, how much you did or didn't drink. Awesome. So a little bit of maths and calculations there, but it's not too hard. And I'm sure we're going to do a little social media carousel coming up our, so we can put those calculations on there as well for, yep. for people. Yep. So now we know how to calculate the the sweat losses and fluid deficit. How about the actual exercise session? Is there a certain type of session that we should be doing these calculations in or does it need to be like, should we have it at a particular intensity or a particular exercise duration? Mm, yeah, it's, it's a really good question and I think this is where sometimes people can get it a little bit wrong as well. Mm. So I guess the first thing is obviously you want to think about what is the purpose of doing this testing or what scenario am I planning on applying these results to? So if I'm doing this testing today because I want to know my fluid losses for my Ironman or my marathon or my you know, my cycling race that's coming up in three months' time, then I need to think about well, what are the conditions I'm expecting in that Ironman or marathon or cycling event in three months' time? What is the pace I'm going to be going at? What is the expected temperature and humidity on that day? And because all of those things affect sweat rate, we need to try and replicate those as closely as we can when we're doing our sweat testing. Because if we go out and do an interval session and take the sweat rate and then try and apply it to an ultra marathon, it's going to be a complete waste of time. Or if it's the middle of winter and we go and do a sweat rate test and for an event that's happening in the middle of summer, it's going to be a complete waste of time as well. So we need to try and replicate those things as best we can. One of the other things that sometimes happens is people do these sweat rate tests in, indoors, like on a bike trainer or a treadmill or something like that, thinking you know it's more kind of controlled, for lack of a better word. But it's completely different temperature, different humidity, different airflow, you know, stationary bike, even if you have a fan, it's never quite the same as actually riding outdoors or running outdoors compared to a treadmill. And so, you know, generally speaking, indoors, you're going to overestimate your sweat rate when you do that kind of thing. 
Now, the other thing is that we do get a bit of variation in sweat rate from day to day. So the other bit of advice here is that, you know, don't do just do a one-off sweat test. You need to do multiple tests and build a, a picture or a profile rather than do a one-off test and say, that's my number. You know, no two days outdoors are ever going to be the same. Like the mm. combination of the wind speed, wind direction, humidity, temperature, pace that you're going at, you know, particularly for running, you know, running economy changes over time and it's never going to be exactly the same on any given day. The clothing that you wear, not only like how much of the skin is covered, but the type of fabric, the color, whether it absorbs heat or reflects it. Mm. Like there's so many different things in there that are going to make it impossible for your sweat rate to be absolutely identical on any two given days. Mm. Now, if you standardize a lot of those things like we can do in the lab, you may see a variance of only kind of 5% or something like that. But outdoors, I'd expect to see a much bigger variation than that. And so I guess the sweat rate that you do calculate from these tests, it's not your rate or the rate or the target in, in a mm. fixed sense like that. Mm. It's more like, you know, you do several tests and this is kind of the, the expected range. Yeah. So at my kind of race pace for whatever particular event I'm doing, my sweat rate in this kind of temperature is going to be maybe between, I don't know, 500 and 800 mils an hour. And so I'm working somewhere within that kind of range rather than saying it's 725 mils. The other thing we spoke to Lewis James about way back in episode 3A is the fact that something like an Ironman or an ultramarathon, the weather conditions will change during the course of the actual race. So it could be quite cool in the morning when you start and then quite hot in the middle of the day. And then depending on the event, you might be going overnight where it could be really cold. And so your sweat rate is going to change across the event as well. So just doing a one-off sweat test isn't going to tell you that whole range of different expected sweat rates. So you need to build a profile across the different sort of conditions and pace combinations that you expect to encounter on race day. Otherwise, it's actually not going to be that helpful for you. The final thing I'd say here is it's not just similar weather conditions, also clothing, because that affects sweat loss as well. So don't get all rugged up and do your sweat rate test and then you're not going to wear all your arm warmers and leg warmers and things on race day or, or vice versa. And the other thing is acclimation status. And what I mean by this is are you acclimatized or acclimated to heat or not? And this is a real challenge, I think, for some athletes. And the, the example I always give is, you know, triathletes, long course triathletes that are training for, say, Ironman in Kona in October. They're training down here in the Southern Hemisphere throughout our winter. Now, they might do a sweat rate test here in the middle of June. You know, if they live in the southern part of Australia, it's pretty cold at that time of year and they're not going to be heat acclimated at all. And then they travel over to Hawaii a couple of weeks before the race. All of a sudden, your body's going to adapt to that warmer climate. And one of the things is that you're going to be able to you know, produce more sweat on race day there. So you're probably going to underestimate your sweat rate when you're measuring in that cold environment if you're not acclimated. So that's a tricky one to get around. Sometimes you might have to do some heat chamber work or, you know, work, you know, indoor training, you know, crank up the heaters in the room for a couple of weeks just to get your body thinking like it's it's uh, in Hawaii, even though it's not, and then do the test or maybe do a test in summer to apply later on in October rather than waiting until June to do the test. So, yeah, that can be a little bit tricky as well. Yeah, so when they're recording the weather conditions, taking note of the, like, the actual the temperature, ambient temperature, and then relative humidity would also be helpful. And then also, what about the actual duration? Did you go into the duration? Mm. 
Yeah, so I mean, there's a couple of things with duration. As I said before, having a nice round number just makes the calculations easier. So doing it as one hour or one and a half or two hours makes sense. As we mentioned earlier, like if you're going sort of beyond four hours, you're going to start to get into the situation where the change in weight doesn't necessarily reflect the change in water content in the body. There's other factors that have to be corrected for, and that gets really tricky. So generally for this kind of sweat testing, you would generally not do it in sessions that are super long because that's not going to be that helpful. But having said that, we know that when you start exercising, your sweat rate doesn't increase to its kind of what we call a steady state or that value where it's going to sit for the rest of the exercise for probably the first 30, 45 minutes of exercise because your sweat rate is dependent on your core body temperature and it's going to take a bit of time for that core body temperature to rise at the start of exercise and then the sweat glands to respond to that. So the first 30 minutes isn't really a great indication of what the next two hours, three hours, 10 hours is potentially going to look like. So ideally, I'd say the session should be longer than an hour. So you minimize the effect of that first 30 minutes. Or sometimes people might even go do a warm up, like do do their exercise for half an hour, then stop and then start the test then. Obviously, Mm. you have to dry yourself off before you do that initial way, which is an extra step. But Mm. if you can do that quickly without cooling down, then you might minimize that kind of effect but yeah I, I think if you can do sort of closer to two hours that's preferable obviously for runners that can be a challenge because that is a pretty long run for a lot of people so if you have to limit it to an hour you have to limit it to an hour but where possible try and go longer but probably not more than about two two and a half hours yep yep let's get into kind of interpreting the the data so how do you go about interpreting an app Athletes fluid balance data. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so I guess as we said before, there's a couple of reasons that you might be doing this. So if you're doing it just to work out the fluid deficit today, so you know how much fluid to drink after the session to rehydrate rapidly and fully, um, that's a relatively quick and easy one. There's there's pretty good guidelines around this, and they have been for a while. And that's aiming to replace about 125 to 150 percent of the fluid deficit within the first kind of four hours after exercise if you're trying to rehydrate quite rapidly. Now, having food along with that fluid can help to kind of absorb and retain that that fluid, or um, you know some sodium electrolytes, that kind of thing. Not absolutely essential, but it can help just preventing you you pee pee some of that fluid out. So I guess the reason that you go for you're replacing more than what you lost is twofold. One is that some of that will get peed out, um, and so you're not going to retain 100% of what you've drunk. And I guess the second part to that is that even when you stop exercising, it's going to take a little while for your body temperature to go back down. And so even after you do that final weigh-in, you're probably still sweating and losing a bit of fluid for, I don't know, 15, 20 minutes, half an hour, whatever it is, after you've kind of finished working out the fluid deficit. So the final deficit one hour after you've stopped exercise might actually be a little bit more than what you originally calculated. Yep, so replacing 125 to 150% of fluid losses over the next four hours. Yeah, of the fluid deficit, not the yep. fluid loss. So, yep. yeah, you might have lost two litres of fluid during the session, but if you drank one and a half, the mm. deficit's only half a litre. Yes. So you, that's the part that you need to calculate off, not the full two litres. Yeah. Otherwise, you're going to end up over. just drinking some massive amount of fluid and spending a lot of the next few hours peeing it back out again. 
Yep. So that's that first initial fluid deficit, what to replace kind of calculation of data. And then I guess, as I said, the other reason is to work out what your expected sweat rate is going to be for some sort of future training or, or race kind of scenario. Uh, and so building that kind of picture of what your expected fluid losses are going to be from multiple tests is really where I see the value in that kind of data as opposed to the one-off. So you get a sense of what the, the lower end of the range is, what the upper end of the range is, and that helps you plan out how much fluid do I need access to on race day. Now, whether that's because I'm getting it from aid stations, it's because I've got a support crew, how much fluid do they need to be able to hand me at any given time, or if I'm being self-sufficient, how much do I need to carry on my bike or on my back or wherever I'm carrying that kind of fluid. As I said before, there is debate over you know exactly what deficit is okay. You know, should I be aiming to lose two percent of my body weight? Should I be aiming to lose three percent, four percent, one percent? It's a difficult question to answer because scientists spend a lot of time arguing with each other about it. But the official guidelines say two percent, and I think two percent is probably not likely to be harmful for anyone. So that's probably a good place to start. And so, is there an expected kind of sweat rate? range so if listeners calculate something outside of this then they've probably gone wrong somewhere along the way or they might think oh I'm a heavy sweater or Mm, yeah yeah certainly I guess for, for that we go and look at like large collections of data that have been taken from lots of different athletes in lots of different scenarios to see what the expected kind of range of human sweat rates are and so there, there are examples of that published in the literature And I would say most people, and when I say most, probably more than 70% of the sweat tests done in those large data sets sit somewhere between 500 mils an hour and 1,500 mils an hour. Mm -hmm. So half a litre to to one and a half litres an hour. Um, You can see results more than one and a half litres an hour, sometimes up to two and a half. And that's usually seen in sort of higher intensity, shorter duration events. So either very short, running events, you know, 10, 10 Ks on the track, but you're measuring the sweat rate in something like that, or team sports, you know, soccer, football, those kinds of things, usually on, you know, hot days as well. Uh, it could be also sort of elite marathon or half marathon runners as well could produce sweat rates that high just because they're working so hard, they're producing so much body heat that they have to sweat that much to get rid of it. But sweat rates of over two and a half liters an hour are, are quite rare. You're talking like less than probably 3% of all the tests conducted in those data sets. And they generally tend to be in things like American football training in the summer where they're wearing all that protective gear that stops the sweat evaporating and they're working really hard in the heat of summer. And that's where you tend, and they're obviously really big guys as well. So that's where you tend to see those sort of extreme levels of sweat rate. But we do see sweat rates less than 500 mils an hour as well. So We see that particularly in ultra endurance exercise or people doing sort of easy training sessions, particularly in cooler environments. Uh, It's not uncommon to see sweat rates of less than 500 mils, say overnight in a trail event or something Mm -hmm. like that, where it's quite cold, Uh, particularly, I guess, in the less elite runners where the pace is a little bit lower. So they're producing less body heat per minute or per hour as well. But yeah. I guess that the reason we probably don't see that represented in those big data sets as much is that they're not generally the type of events or sessions that are actually tested when they do this kind of testing. So I suspect there's more of that out there, but we don't see it in the research because it's not what researchers study. 
Yep. For your study, we had people, you know, lovely people like me donating five hours of their time running on the treadmill. (laughs) And that was just running at like 60% from memory of of VO2 max. Mm. Can you recall the rough sweat rate range there? Yeah. So in the study, the average loss was about 850, 900 mils an hour, roughly. So obviously the, the pace wasn't super high. Most people running between about 8 and 10 kilometres an hour, mm. uh, 30 degrees, but pretty low humidity, only about 20% humidity. And looking at the range, I guess the lower end of that was about 550 mils an hour yep. and the upper end was about 1,100, 1,200 mils an hour. But I would say the majority of people sat between kind of 700 and 1,000 mils an hour. So it was a relatively tight range because everyone was running in the same conditions mm. at not exactly the same speed because it was percentage of their VO2 max, but at mm. a reasonably similar speed. They were, a, I guess you'd call it a fairly homogenous group of people in like level of fitness and experience mm. and that kind of thing was similar. It wasn't like we had people that had never run ultras before versus, you know, elite UTMB runners or something like that where you're going to see mm. big differences in pace and therefore big differences in sweat rate. Yeah. And so I know you often talk about some extra information that you can collect during sweat rate testing, and this actually adds a lot more insight into this type of of testing. So can you tell us a bit more about that? Mm. So obviously when you work out a sweat rate, and obviously you can calculate how much you drank because you're measuring your fluid before and after, and you're measuring that body deficit in... um, percentage terms you know did I lose two percent of my body mass or three percent or whatever and and that's traditionally what people have done and then you'd get that result and you might say well I've lost more percentage of my body mass loss than I'd like to so I'm obviously not drinking enough here's my sweat rate let's just drink more Mm -hmm. but what it doesn't really give you much insight into is why you're not drinking more or potentially what are the barriers or the challenges that are preventing you from drinking more or on the flip side, if you're hardly losing any weight or you're even gaining weight, so you're over-drinking during exercise, you're, why are you over-drinking during exercise? What's the reason behind that? And so there's some very simple things you can add to this testing that gives you so much more insight into all of these things that tell, you know, helps you understand why your drinking behaviour is as it is, but also what are the challenges that need to be overcome and, and therefore what you need to go away and do as homework to sort of correct for this if if you're not in that kind of sweet spot as you said earlier so i guess the first thing i would do is measure thirst as in rate your sense of thirst on a scale of zero to ten so zero is i'm not at all thirsty like absolutely not interested in fluid 10 is, you know, you probably found me after a few days out in the desert with no fluid and I would just kill for a drop of water type thing. So you can rate that sense of thirst on that 0 to 10 scale both before exercise and then at the end of exercise. Now, the other thing to rate on a 0 to 10 scale, and maybe you can talk a bit more about this, Steph, because it's your area of expertise, is gut tolerance, but particularly gut tolerance to fluid on a scale of 0 to 10. So essentially... Uh, the, the question that we ask, and you can probably explain this a bit better than me, Steph, is like we just ask participants when we're doing this in the lab, like, could you drink? And so a 10 would be I could just give you a bottle of fluid and you could just chug it down, no problem at all, really easy. And a zero is, no, it would probably just come straight back up. There's no way I could drink that. Is that a fair summary of how you would describe it? Yep. Spot on. Yeah. Yep. Yep. 
Okay. And so by doing that before and afterwards, we're getting a sense of how our thirst was at the start and end of the session, but also how our gut tolerance of fluid was at the start and the end of the session. Now, if you're having any specific gut symptoms during the session, you can also record those. You can use that same zero to 10 scale. So you might've had nausea or you might've had a bit of reflux or I don't know, flatulence, you know, whatever it is, it'll, it'll vary for different people. That can be helpful to record that as well, because you can see how that changes over time as you try to implement some strategies that we'll talk about in a minute. And then when you're doing your calculations, so you're working out your sweat rate, your body mass loss percentage, all those kinds of things. The other things I always add to that, and you already have this data from the weighing of your, your fluid bottles, is how much fluid was available at the start of the session. And then also, what was the percentage of that fluid that was available that you actually drank? So I might have started the session with 850 mils of fluid available to me, and I drank 40% of it, or I drank 90% of it, or whatever it is by the end of the session. So once you have these extra bits of data, so the sense of thirst, the gut tolerance, the fluid availability, and then how what percentage of that fluid was drank, you can start to build a much better picture of your drinking behavior in relation to your sweat rate as well. So you can start to work out, okay, well, uh, am I drinking too little, the right amount or too much? We already know that. But how does my sense of thirst fit with this? So if I'm over drinking during exercise, but my thirst is down around a one or two. Well, I'm not thirsty, but I'm drinking anyway. So what's with that? So then you can start to say, okay, well, why am I drinking too much? It's not, I'm not drinking to thirst. Maybe I need to listen to my sense of thirst more, maybe repeat that process, being particularly cognizant of your thirst and maybe aiming to keep it at a, I don't know, a four or a five or something like that and see where that gets you. Or you might go, well, actually, I wasn't drinking anywhere near enough and I was terribly thirsty at the end. So I wasn't listening to my sense of thirst, or maybe I was listening to my sense of thirst. I just didn't have enough fluid available. So I actually didn't have enough fluid at the start of the session to drink to thirst. And so that's an issue as well. Or if I'm over drinking, I might've been drinking 95% of the fluid I took with me. So actually maybe I'm taking too much fluid with me. I could take a bit less. And so you can see as you start to put this picture together, it really helps you to work out how much fluid do you need to take with you? How much can you trust your sense of thirst? Do you need to trust it more or trust it less or modify how you think about thirst and how you, I guess, interpret it when you're out running or riding or whatever you're doing as well. And then the final thing is the gut tolerance side of things. So say you don't drink much fluid during exercise, you drink it like a low percentage of the fluid that was available. So it's not a fluid availability issue. I had enough. I just didn't drink it. Now, I might have been quite thirsty. You know, I might have been, you know, seven or eight on that thirst scale. So I was thirsty. The fluid was there, but I didn't drink it. But maybe I didn't drink it because my gut tolerance was poor. And actually, I wanted to drink it, but I couldn't stomach the fluid. So now my issue is not planning fluid better. My issue is not listening to thirst better. My issue is I need to go out and do some gut training and improve my fluid tolerance because I can't tolerate the volume of fluid required to actually hydrate properly. Um, so that can be a really useful strategy as well. And obviously we've talked on a previous podcast with you, Steph, about gut training and, and how to achieve that as well, both for carbohydrate but also for fluid and the fact that you can improve your tolerance to, to drinking fluid during exercise. So it's not like a, oh, this is me, I just can't do it. You can work on it and actually improve it. Yep. 
Awesome. Very helpful additions to the sweat rate fluid assessment testing. Just going into tech a bit here, because we, we know we all love our tech. I've seen an increase in the number of wearables coming onto the market, mostly in the US and Europe, of course, because they always tend to be a bit more ahead of us in, in Ausland. But they claim to be able to tell you your sweat rate in real time. So how is that possible? <laughs> That's a good question. Yeah, I mean, there, there are ways to assess sweat rate in real time, and some of them are used in laboratory research. They're quite different to this. They use these special capsule things that are attached by all these wires that you could never actually use in the real world. Mm. Totally impractical, but mm. you know, quite accurate. But then, as you said, there's all these different wearables, and they all work in slightly different ways. So I won't go into the details of the like the mechanisms on mm. how they work. But I guess my issue here is, you know, are they accurate? Well, I guess there's two parts to that question is, is it accurate of measuring the sweat rate at the site that the actual device is touching your skin, which mm. is typically on your arm for most of the devices? And they may be or they may not be. The problem is if you go to the websites of these companies, you know, the, the thing that the first thing I look for is, the, the, what we call the scientific validation. In other words, I've measured using this device compared to an established method that's used in laboratory research mm -hmm. that we know is accurate and how well do the two agree with each other. Mm -hmm. And I've gone to the websites of most of these sweat rate wearables and not one of them has any information on there about their scientific validity. Now, mm -hmm. I'm sure they'll, they'll tell you, the marketing people, oh, yeah, it's valid, it's accurate, all that kind of stuff. It's like, yeah, but I want the data. I want to see it with my own eyes in peer-reviewed research that this has actually been tested and been shown to be accurate. Whether it's accurate at measuring your sweat rate on the arm or not is one thing, but then it has to estimate sweat rate for the entire body, mm -hmm. which is what we do when we weigh ourselves before and after exercise. And that's where I see a lot of people saying it has absolutely no correlation, like people are going out and weighing themselves before and after and wearing the sweat patch mm -hmm. and or the wearable device. And they're saying that there's absolutely no correlation between the two and, yeah, the mm. sweat rate that it's giving you is absolute garbage. Yep. Now, part of that could be that you can't accurately measure what's going on in the arm at the first place, but the other one is that measuring at a single side of the body and then trying to estimate what's going on for the entire body, it's hard for sweat sodium, it's even harder for sweat rate. Um, and so it's probably just an issue where it's it's almost impossible just to measure what's going on at one side on the body, no matter how accurate that measurement is, and extrapolate that to what's going on at the whole body level. Yeah. Now, whether we, you know, whether these guys come up with better algorithms over time that mm. does get us closer to being more accurate, hopefully, I think there's mm. enormous potential in this. But at this stage, I'm not seeing scientific data to show it. And the anecdotal reports I'm hearing for people are, no, they're not accurate at all. There has been a couple of exceptions. I've, I've heard of a couple of ultra runners who are probably running at a much lower intensity that have said like it, it marries up reasonably well for them. But for anyone doing sort of higher intensity work or, you know, in hot environments and things like that, like higher sweat rates, they're mm -hmm. telling me that it's nowhere near what they get from weighing themselves. Yeah, because there's so many assumptions that are made. In, mm. in that and so much individual yeah. variation. Yeah. yeah, like I think there's, there's still promise there, but I think it's a long mm. way to go uh, mm. and I wouldn't be jumping on that that bandwagon at this stage and saying it's a real-time sweat rate measure. Yeah, 
And it's not that hard, as we've just seen, to do the sweat rate and the fluid loss. Well, not only that, I think there there are potentially dangerous implications if you trust that data to the nth degree. Like Mm. if you go out and do an ultra or, you know, an Ironman or something like that and you say, my my little device here tells me I'm drink, you know I'm losing 800 mils an hour, so I'm going to mm. drink I don't know 750 mils an hour or something, yep. but it's overestimating. You could end up with hyponatremia after 10 or 15 hours, mm. uh, or vice versa. You could end up severely dehydrated if it's underestimating your sweat rate as well. So mm. yeah, I mean I'd still go for the the weighing yourself before and after, building a profile of what is expected. And then using thirst to kind of adjust that as you're going in real time. I don't think the wearables yet are at that stage where I would trust trust that mm-hmm. over your sense of thirst and what you already know from training. Yep, yep. And just looking at um, other factors that can affect sweat rate during exercise, and I know some of our female listeners will be interested to know if menstrual cycle influences sweat rate or you know do females lose less than males typically Mm, yeah so i'll start off with the males versus females part and then we'll look at the menstrual cycle so for males versus females it doesn't seem to have a general effect on sweat rate so that said males will generally sweat more simply because they're bigger and producing more body heat per minute or per hour so if you have a, a male athlete and a female athlete, and obviously this is a big generalization because it depends on how fit they are, et cetera, mm. you know, you might have the male athlete pushing more watts on the bike, for example. So you're pushing more watts, you're producing more heat. You're producing more heat, you're going to sweat more mm. and vice versa. So obviously that's a big generalization. It depends on body size. It depends on fitness and all those sorts of things. But I guess if you were to try and generalize that, yes, males are generally going to have a higher sweat rate than females, but it's not a sex-specific effect. It's just mm-hmm. a how much power are you putting out or how much heat are you producing mm-hmm. during exercise effect per se. Yep. In terms of the menstrual cycle side of it, it it's not 100% clear. We do know that changes in the total amount of water in your body change across the menstrual cycle and there's sort of more fluid retention in that luteal phase, which is the second half of the cycle. We know also that your body starts to sweat when it reaches a certain core temperature and the core temperature that causes sweating to start changes in the luteal phase. And that's probably not a surprise because core temperature in general is different in the luteal phase. It tends to be a little bit higher. And so the relationship between sweat rate and core temperature seems to change a little bit in that luteal phase so that generally the, the sweat rate is a little bit lower for any given core temperature. But that said, once someone's heat acclimated, that effect tends to wash out, that the effect of acclimation is much greater than the effect of the actual menstrual cycle phase itself. And whole body sweat losses over a number of hours, the difference from from what we can tell in the literature so far is so small, it's probably not important mm. to, to factor in or deliberately, I guess, correct for or right. make, you know, change what you do because of it. Mm. Yep. Yep. Cool. So I guess now just wrapping up, what's the the key points for our listeners that they can use in their own training and I guess separating or considering doing fluid balance assessments for training and then it's a whole nother area in terms of for, for racing? Yeah. Yeah. So for training, obviously that that's this kind of the straightforward one. You're just trying to work out the fluid deficit and 
really you'd only need to do that if rapid rehydration is important to you because you've got another hard session later on that day where the quality of that session is important or it's a stage race where you want to you know restore that hydration as best you can for the next stage you know the next morning or whatever it is uh so that that's a pretty straightforward one and then once you've got that fluid deficit remembering that it's only the the deficit not the total fluid loss you take 125 to 150 percent of that drink that in the first four hours afterwards preferably with some food or if you don't have food or you can't eat food in that stage you know with some sodium or, or other electrolytes can help retain more of that fluid so that's the i guess the the one-off training thing and then the other reason that you do it is for the race planning and i guess here it's useful for planning i would say the fluid that you need to have available to you at any given time rather than setting you know, a fixed or rigid drinking volume and saying i have to drink this because my sweat rate told me so because there's so many variables that go into that so thirst is still going to play a role here but you need to understand how thirst plays a role for you because it will be a little bit different in different people i guess when you're doing the test you need to standardize the conditions that you do the test in so that's the pace the weather conditions whether it's indoors versus outdoors the clothing all those kinds of things and whether you're acclimated or acclimatized to the the weather or not you can calculate your fluid deficit to work out those sort of race specific ones but understanding that your sweat rate will change across the day in some of those longer events depending on the weather conditions and, and how they change across the day so you're really building a profile of the expected fluid needs rather than a rigid this is my sweat rate number and i think that's where people maybe have gone wrong in the in the past so build up that profile understand what the expected ranges are make sure you've got enough fluid to, to cover say the worst case scenario and then use that sort of sense of thirst to maybe adjust what you're doing based on that and then finally you know by adding in the thirst gut tolerance the fluid available and the percentage of that that you actually consumed when you do your test will give you really valuable feedback to why your drinking behavior is as it is in relation to your sweat and what to do about it moving forward if, if it needs to be corrected awesome so I think our listeners this week or next week will all be heading out to the trails or wherever they're, they're training with the scales and getting somewhat <laughs> nude. <laughs> Some scales so, behind trees. Yeah. In the so send, send us those pictures of you doing your full balance <laughs> testing, not with you nude, please. But let us know if you do find that that helpful. I'm sure our listeners will and those extra additions are very useful indeed. So let's talk about our our next episode. So the 100th. Yeah, so our 100th ever podcast, which is very exciting. It's taken us, what, two and a bit years to get there, just over two years to get there. So we mm -hmm. thought, as as we have done for most of these milestone episodes, we'd sort of deviate from the normal format of you know, having a specific question that we answer and doing one that, that we just find interesting to uh, <laughs> chat to someone about. So we've had, you know, Nutrition for the Nike Breaking 2 project. That was our 50th episode. And then we had episode number 50 because obviously we have the A's and B's and things like that. Talked mm. to ultra running coaching legend Jason Coop. And for this one, we're going to look at what it takes to fuel running 150 marathons in 150 days with our special guest, Akana 
Murray Bartlett, who's just recently finished that only a few weeks ago, mm. running from, well, tip to toe, so one end of the top of Australia to the bottom. Yeah, I um, I was stalking her social media, watching the videos for, for each of those days, and, yeah, she kept it very entertaining. And, yeah, it was great just to see the, the whole emotional roller coaster of it all. So we get to... Um, go into that and yeah and obviously talk about some of those nutrition bits that, that helped her get through so really excited for, for that one hour yeah and she has a degree in nutrition so she'll have some really good insights uh, and can talk shop about it maybe better than some runners can so it'll be really interesting to see how she kind of approached her, her planning for it as well yeah yeah so just wrapping up, a reminder, if you do have a question you'd like answered on the podcast, you can contact us at The Long Munch on Instagram, Facebook or Twitter. And thanks to those people who have left ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. We really appreciate it. And remember also that there's now more than 50 previous questions we've already answered. So if you're new to the podcast, welcome you may like to check out the back catalogue to see if there's something there that's helpful to you. Most podcast apps only show you the last few episodes, but if you click back, you'll find the rest of them there going back to November 2020. And if you do want to be notified every time that a new episode's available, you can hit subscribe on the podcast app that you're listening to this on. And if your friends are bugging you, asking you nutrition questions and you're just tired of always answering it and you've heard it on the podcast before, then you might like to let them know and then, you know, they no longer have to nag you. They can um, nag us for any other questions that we haven't answered. But, yeah, otherwise, Al, um, I know you said this for me last week, so I'll let you do it again. <laughs> no, I'm going to hand it back to you. This is your, this is your spot, Steph. <laughs> <laughs> I did have a chuckle when I listened to that. So we will love and leave you and, um, yeah, look forward to, to catching up with you in a couple of weeks' time. Yep. See you then.